Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Section 11 of Orlando by Virginia Woolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corey Samuel. Chapter 4, Part 3. And as she drove, we may seize the opportunity, since the landscape was of a simple English kind which needs no description, to draw the reader's attention more particularly than we could at the moment to one or two remarks which have slipped in here and there in the course of the narrative. For example, it may have been observed that Orlando hid her manuscripts when interrupted. Next, that she looked long and intently in the glass, and now, as she drove to London, one might notice her starting and suppressing a cry when the horses galloped faster than she liked. Her modesty as to her writing, her vanity as to her person, her fears for her safety, all seems to hint that what was said a short time ago about there being no change in Orlando the man and Orlando the woman, was ceasing to be altogether true. She was becoming a little more modest, as women are, of her brains, and a little more vain, as women are, of her person. Certain susceptibilities were asserting themselves, and others were diminishing. The change of clothes had, some philosophers will say, much to do with it. Vain trifles as they seem, Clothes have, they say, more important offices than merely to keep us warm. They change our view of the world, and the world's view of us. For example, when Captain Bartolus saw Orlando's skirt, he had an awning stretched for her immediately, pressed her to take another slice of beef, and invited her to go ashore with him in the longboat. These compliments would certainly not have been paid her, had her skirts, instead of flowing, been cut tight to her legs in the fashion of breeches. And when we are paid compliments, it behoves us to make some return. Orlando curtsied. She complied. She flattered the good man's humours as she would not have done, had his neat breeches been a woman's skirts, and his braided coat a woman's satin bodice. Thus there is much to support the view that it is clothes that wear us, and not we them. We may make them take the mould of arm or breast, but they mould our hearts, our brains, our tongues, to their liking. So, having now worn skirts for a considerable time, a certain change was visible in Orlando, which is to be found if the reader will look at the picture above, even in her face. If we compare the picture of Orlando as a man with that of Orlando as a woman, we shall see that, though both are undoubtedly one and the same person, there are certain changes. The man has his hand free to seize his sword. The woman must use hers to keep the satins from slipping from her shoulders. The man looks the world full in the face, as if it were made for his uses and fashioned to his liking. The woman takes a sidelong glance at it, full of subtlety, even of suspicion. Had they both worn the same clothes, it is possible that their outlook might have been the same.' 
That is the view of some philosophers, and wise ones, but on the whole we incline to another. The difference between the sexes is, happily, one of great profundity. Clothes are but a symbol of something hid deep beneath. It was a change in Orlando herself that dictated her choice of a woman's dress and of a woman's sex. And perhaps in this she was only expressing rather more openly than usual—openness indeed was the soul of her nature—something that happens to most people without being thus plainly expressed. For here again we come to a dilemma. Different though the sexes are, they intermix. In every human being a vacillation from one sex to the other takes place, and often it is only the clothes that keep the male or female likeness, while underneath the sex is the very opposite of what it is above. Of the complications and confusions which thus result, every one has had experience. But here we leave the general question, and note only the odd effect it had in the particular case of Orlando herself. For it was this mixture in her of man and woman, one being uppermost and then the other, that often gave her conduct an unexpected turn. The curious of her own sex would argue, for example, if Orlando was a woman, how did she never take more than ten minutes to dress? And were not her clothes chosen rather at random, and sometimes worn rather shabby? And then they would say, still, she has none of the formality of a man, or a man's love of power. She is excessively tender-hearted. She could not endure to see a donkey beaten or a kitten drowned. Yet again, they noted, she detested household matters, was up at dawn and out among the fields in summer before the sun had risen. No farmer knew more about the crops than she did. She could drink with the best and liked games of hazard. She rode well and drove six horses at a gallop over London Bridge. Yet again, though bold and active as a man, it was remarked that the sight of another in danger brought on the most womanly palpitations. She would burst into tears on slight provocation. She was unversed in geography, found mathematics intolerable, and held some caprices which are more common among women than men, as, for instance, that to travel south is to travel downhill. Whether, then, Orlando was most man or woman, it is difficult to say, and cannot now be decided, for her coach was now rattling on the cobbles. She had reached her home in the city. The steps were being let down, the iron gates were being opened. She was entering her father's house at Blackfriars, which, though fashion was fast deserting that end of the town, was still a pleasant, roomy mansion, with gardens running down to the river, and a pleasant grove of nut-trees to walk in. Here she took up her lodging, and began instantly to look about her for what she had come in search of—that is to say, life and a lover. About the first there might be some doubt, the second she found without the least difficulty two days after her arrival. It was a Tuesday that she came to town. On Thursday she went for a walk in the Mall, which was then the habit of persons of quality. She had not made more than a turn or two of the avenue, before she was observed by a little knot of vulgar people, who go there to spy upon their betters. As she came past them, a common woman, carrying a child at her breast, stepped forward, peered familiarly into Orlando's face, and cried out, "'Look upon us, if it ain't the Lady Orlando!' Her companions came crowding round, 
and Orlando found herself in a moment the centre of a mob of staring citizens and tradesmen's wives, all eager to gaze upon the heroine of the celebrated lawsuit. Such was the interest that the case excited in the minds of the common people. She might, indeed, have found herself gravely discommoded by the pressure of the crowd. She had forgotten that ladies are not supposed to walk in public places alone, had not a tall gentleman at once stepped forward and offered her the protection of his arm. It was the Archduke. She was overcome with distress, and yet with some amusement at the sight. Not only had this magnanimous nobleman forgiven her, but, in order to show that he took her levity with the toad in good part, he had procured a jewel made in the shape of that reptile, which he pressed upon her with a repetition of his suit, as he handed her to her coach. What with the crowd, what with the duke, what with the jewel, she drove home in the vilest temper imaginable. Was it impossible, then, to go for a walk without being half suffocated, presented with a toad set in emeralds, and asked in marriage by an archduke? She took a kinder view of the case next day, when she found on her breakfast-table half a dozen billets from some of the greatest ladies in the land, Lady Suffolk, Lady Salisbury, Lady Chesterfield, Lady Tavistock, and others who reminded her, in the politest manner, of old alliances between their families and her own, and desired the honour of her acquaintance. Next day, which was a Saturday, many of these great ladies waited on her in person. On Tuesday, about noon, their footmen brought cards of invitation to various routs, dinners and assemblies in the near future, so that Orlando was launched without delay, and with some splash and foam at that, upon the waters of London society. To give a truthful account of London society at that, or indeed at any other time, is beyond the powers of the biographer or the historian. Only those who have little need of the truth, and no respect for it, the poets and the novelists, can be trusted to do it, for this is one of the cases where the truth does not exist. Nothing exists. The whole thing is a miasma, a mirage. To make our meaning plain, Orlando could come home from one of these routes at three or four in the morning, with cheeks like a Christmas tree and eyes like stars. She would untie a lace, pace the room a score of times, untie another lace, stop and pace the room again. Often the sun would be blazing over Southwark chimneys before she could persuade herself to get into bed, and there she would lie, pitching and tossing, laughing and sighing, for an hour or longer before she slept at last. And what was all this stir about? Society! And what had society said or done to throw a reasonable lady into such an excitement? In plain language, nothing. Rack her memory as she would, next day Orlando could never remember a single word to magnify into the name something. Lord O had been gallant, Lord A polite, the Marquis of C charming, Mr. M amusing. But when she tried to recollect in what their gallantry, politeness, charm, or wit had consisted, she was bound to suppose her memory at fault, for she could not name a thing. It was the same always. Nothing remained over the next day, yet the excitement of the moment was intense. Thus we are forced to conclude that society is one of those brews such as skilled housekeepers serve hot about Christmas time, 
whose flavour depends upon the proper mixing and stirring of a dozen different ingredients. Take one out, and it is in itself insipid. Take away Lord O, Lord A, Lord C, or Mr. M, and separately each is nothing. Stir them all together, and they combine to give off the most intoxicating of flavours, the most seductive of scents. Yet this intoxication, this seductiveness, entirely evade our analysis. At one and the same time, therefore, society is everything, and society is nothing. Society is the most powerful concoction in the world, and society has no existence whatsoever. Such monsters the poets and the novelists alone can deal with. With such something-nothings their works are stuffed out to prodigious size, and to them, with the best will in the world, we are content to leave it. Following the example of our predecessors, therefore, we will only say that society in the reign of Queen Anne was of unparalleled brilliance. To have the entry there was the aim of every well-bred person. The graces were supreme. Fathers instructed their sons, mothers their daughters. No education was complete for either sex, which did not include the science of deportment, the art of bowing and curtsying, the management of the sword and the fan, the care of the teeth, the conduct of the leg, the flexibility of the knee, the proper methods of entering and leaving the room, with a thousand etceteras, such as will immediately suggest themselves to anybody who has himself been in society. Since Orlando had won the praise of Queen Elizabeth for the way she handed a bowl of rose-water as a boy, it must be supposed that she was sufficiently expert to pass muster. Yet it is true that there was an absent-mindedness about her, which sometimes made her clumsy. She was apt to think of poetry, when she should have been thinking of taffeta. Her walk was a little too much of a stride for a woman, perhaps, and her gestures, being abrupt, might endanger a cup of tea on occasion. Whether this slight disability was enough to counterbalance the splendour of her bearing, or whether she inherited a drop too much of that black humour which ran in the veins of all her race, certain it is that she had not been in the world more than a score of times, before she might have been heard to ask herself, had there been anybody but her spaniel Pippin to hear her, "'What the devil is the matter with me?' The occasion was Tuesday, the 16th of June, 1712. She had just returned from a great ball at Arlington House. The dawn was in the sky, and she was pulling off her stockings. "'I don't care if I never meet another soul as long as I live,' cried Orlando, bursting into tears. Lovers she had in plenty, but life, which is, after all, of some importance in its way, escaped her. "'Is this?' she asked, but there was none to answer. "'Is this?' she finished her sentence all the same, what people call life. The spaniel raised her forepaw in token of sympathy. The spaniel licked Orlando with her tongue. Orlando stroked the spaniel with her hand. Orlando kissed the spaniel with her lips. In short, there was the truest sympathy between them that can be between a dog and its mistress. And yet it cannot be denied that the dumbness of animals is a great impediment to the refinements of intercourse. They wag their tails, they bow the front part of the body and elevate the hind, they roll, they jump, they paw, they whine, they bark, they slobber, they have all sorts of ceremonies and artifices of their own, 
but the whole thing is of no avail, since speak they cannot. Such was her quarrel, she thought, setting the dog gently on to the floor, with the great people at Arlington House. They too wag their tails, bow, roll, jump, pour and slobber, but talk they cannot. "'All these months that I've been out in the world,' said Orlando, pitching one stocking across the room, "'I've heard nothing but what Pippin might have said. I'm cold, I'm happy, I'm hungry, I've caught a mouse, I've buried a bone, please kiss my nose.' And it was not enough. How, in so short a time, she had passed from intoxication to disgust, we will only seek to explain by supposing that this mysterious composition which we call society is nothing absolutely good or bad in itself, but has a spirit in it, volatile but potent, which either makes you drunk when you think it, as Orlando thought it, delightful, or gives you a headache when you think it, as Orlando thought it, repulsive. That the faculty of speech has much to do with it either way, we take leave to doubt. Often a dumb hour is the most ravishing of all. Brilliant wit can be tedious beyond description. But to the poets we leave it, and so on with our story. Orlando threw the second stocking after the first, and went to bed dismally enough, determined that she would forswear society for ever. But again, as it turned out, she was too hasty in coming to her conclusions. For the very next morning she woke to find, among the usual cards of invitation upon her table, one from a certain great lady, the Countess of R. Having determined overnight that she would never go into society again, we can only explain Orlando's behaviour. She sent a messenger hot-foot to R. House, to say that she would attend her ladyship with all the pleasure in the world, by the fact that she was still suffering from the effect of three honeyed words, dropped into her ear on the deck of the enamoured lady, by Captain Nicholas Benedict Bartolus, as they sailed down the Thames. Addison, Dryden, Pope, he had said, pointing to the cocoa-tree, and Addison, Dryden, Pope, had chimed in her head like an incantation ever since. Who can credit such folly? But so it was. All her experience with Nick Green had taught her nothing. Such names still exercised over her the most powerful fascination. Something, perhaps, we must believe in. And as Orlando, we have said, had no belief in the usual divinities, she bestowed her credulity upon great men, yet with a distinction. Admirals, soldiers, statesmen moved her not at all. But the very thought of a great writer stirred her to such a pitch of belief that she almost believed him to be invisible. Her instinct was a sound one. One can only believe entirely, perhaps, in what one cannot see. The little glimpse she had of these great men, from the deck of the ship, was of the nature of a vision. That the cup was china, or the gazette paper, she doubted. When Lord O. said one day that he had dined with Dryden the night before, she flatly disbelieved him. Now the Lady R.'s reception-room had the reputation of being the antechamber to the presence-room of genius. It was the place where men and women met to swing censers and chant hymns, to the bust of genius in a niche in the wall. Sometimes the god himself vouchsafed his presence for a moment. Intellect alone admitted the suppliant, and nothing, 
so the report ran, was said inside that was not witty. It was thus with great trepidation that Orlando entered the room. She found a company already assembled in a semicircle round the fire. Lady R., an oldish lady of dark complexion, with a black lace mantilla on her head, was seated in a great armchair in the centre. Thus, being somewhat deaf, she could control the conversation on both sides of her. On both sides of her sat men and women of the highest distinction. Every man, it was said, had been a Prime Minister, and every woman, it was whispered, had been the mistress of a king. Certain it is that all were brilliant, and all were famous. Orlando took her seat with a deep reverence in silence. After three hours she curtsied profoundly and left. But what, the reader may ask with some exasperation, happened in between? In three hours such a company must have said the wittiest, the profoundest, the most interesting things in the world. So it would seem, indeed. But the fact appears to be that they said nothing. It is a curious characteristic which they share with all the most brilliant societies that the world has seen. Old Madame du Deffon and her friends talked for fifty years without stopping. And of it all, what remains? Perhaps three witty sayings so that we are at liberty to suppose either that nothing was said, or that nothing witty was said, or that the fraction of three witty sayings lasted eighteen thousand two hundred and fifty nights, which does not leave a liberal allowance of wit for any one of them. The truth would seem to be, if we dare use such a word in such a connection, that all these groups of people lie under an enchantment. The hostess is our modern Sibyl. She is a witch who lays her guests under a spell. In this house they think themselves happy, in that witty, in a third profound. It is all an illusion, which is nothing against it, for illusions are the most valuable and necessary of all things, and she who can create one is among the world's greatest benefactors. But as it is notorious that illusions are shattered by conflict with reality, so no real happiness, no real wit, no real profundity, are tolerated where the illusion prevails. This serves to explain why Madame du Deffon said no more than three witty things in the course of fifty years. Had she said more, her circle would have been destroyed. The witticism, as it left her lips, bowled over the current conversation as a cannon-ball lays low the violets and the daisies. When she made her famous mot de Saint-Denis, the very grass was singed disillusionment and desolation followed. Not a word was uttered. "'Spare us another such, for heaven's sake, madame!' her friends cried with one accord. And she obeyed. For almost seventeen years she said nothing memorable, and all went well. The beautiful counterpane of illusion lay unbroken on her circle, as it lay unbroken on the circle of Lady R. The guests thought that they were happy, thought that they were witty, thought that they were profound. And, as they thought this, other people thought it still more strongly. And so it got about that nothing was more delightful than one of Lady R.'s assemblies. Everyone envied those who were admitted. Those who were admitted envied themselves, because other people envied them. And so there seemed no end to it, except that which we have now to relate. 
for about the third time Orlando went there a certain incident occurred. She was still under the illusion that she was listening to the most brilliant epigrams in the world, though, as a matter of fact, old General C. was only saying, at some length, how the gout had left his left leg and gone to his right, while Mr. L. interrupted when any proper name was mentioned. R. Oh, I know Billy R. as well as I know myself. S. My dearest friend. T. Stayed with him a fortnight in Yorkshire. Which, such as the force of illusion, sounded like the wittiest repartee, the most searching comment upon human life, and kept the company in a roar. When the door opened, and a little gentleman entered, whose name Orlando did not catch. Soon a curiously disagreeable sensation came over her. To judge from their faces, the rest began to feel it as well. One gentleman said there was a draught. The Marchioness of C. feared a cat must be under the sofa. It was as if their eyes were being slowly opened after a pleasant dream, and nothing met them but a cheap washstand and a dirty counterpane. It was as if the fumes of some delicious wine were slowly leaving them. Still the General talked, and still Mr. L. remembered. But it became more and more apparent how red the General's neck was, how bald Mr. L.'s head was. As for what they said, nothing more tedious and trivial could be imagined. Everybody fidgeted, and those who had fans yawned behind them. At last Lady R. rapped with hers upon the arm of her great chair. Both gentlemen stopped talking. Then the little gentleman said. He said next. He said finally. These sayings are too well known to require repetition, and besides they are all to be found in his published works. Here, it cannot be denied, was true wit, true wisdom, true profundity. The company was thrown into complete dismay. One such saying was bad enough but three, one after another, on the same evening. No society could survive it. "'Mr. Pope,' said old Lady R., in a voice trembling with sarcastic fury, "'you are pleased to be witty.' Mr. Pope flushed red. Nobody spoke a word. They sat in dead silence some twenty minutes. Then, one by one, they rose and slunk from the room that they would ever come back after such an experience was doubtful. Link-boys could be heard calling their coaches all down South Audley Street. Doors were slammed and carriages drove off. Orlando found herself near Mr. Pope on the staircase. His lean and misshapen frame was shaken by a variety of emotions. Darts of malice, rage, triumph, wit, and terror. He was shaking like a leaf shot from his eyes. He looked like some squat reptile set with a burning topaz in its forehead. At the same time, the strangest tempest of emotion seized now upon the luckless Orlando. A disillusionment so complete as that inflicted not an hour ago leaves the mind rocking from side to side. Everything appears ten times more bare and stark than before. It is a moment fraught with the highest danger for the human spirit. Women turn nuns and men priests in such moments. In such moments, rich men sign away their wealth, and happy men cut their throats with carving knives. 
Orlando would have done all willingly, but there was a rasher thing still for her to do, and this she did. She invited Mr. Pope to come home with her. For if it is rash to walk into a lion's den unarmed, rash to navigate the Atlantic in a rowing-boat, rash to stand on one foot on the top of St. Paul's, it is still more rash to go home alone with a poet. A poet is Atlantic and lion in one. While one drowns us, the other gnaws us. If we survive the teeth, we succumb to the waves. A man who can destroy illusions is both beast and flood. Illusions are to the soul what atmosphere is to the earth. Roll up that tender air, and the plant dies, the colour fades, the earth we walk on is a parched cinder. It is mull we tread, and fiery cobbles scorch our feet. By the truth we are undone. Life is a dream, tis waking that kills us. He who robs us of our dreams robs us of our life. And so on, for six pages, if you will, but the style is tedious and may well be dropped. On this showing, however, Orlando should have been a heap of cinders by the time the chariot drew up at her house in Blackfriars. That she was still flesh and blood, though certainly exhausted, is entirely due to a fact to which we drew attention earlier in the narrative. The less we see, the more we believe. Now, the streets that lie between Mayfair and Blackfriars were at that time very imperfectly lit. True, the lighting was a great improvement upon that of the Elizabethan age. Then the benighted traveller had to trust to the stars, or the red flame of some night watchman, to save him from the gravel-pits at Park Lane, or the oak-woods where swine rootled in the Tottenham Court Road. But even so it wanted much of our modern efficiency. Lamp-posts lit with oil-lamps occurred every two hundred yards or so, but between lay a considerable stretch of pitch-darkness. Thus, for ten minutes, Orlando and Mr. Pope would be in blackness, and then for about half a minute again in the light. A very strange state of mind was thus bred in Orlando. As the light faded, she began to feel steal over her the most delicious balm. This is indeed a very great honour for a young woman to be driving with Mr. Pope, she began to think, looking at the outline of his nose. I am the most blessed of my sex. Half an inch from me. Indeed, I feel the knot of his knee-ribbons pressing against my thigh is the greatest wit in Her Majesty's dominions. Future ages will think of us with curiosity, and envy me with fury. Here came the lamp-post again. What a foolish wretch I am, she thought. There is no such thing as fame or glory. Ages to come will never cast a thought on me or on Mr. Pope, either. What's an age, indeed? What are we? And their progress through Berkeley Square seemed the groping of two blind ants, momentarily thrown together without interest or concern in common, across a blackened desert. She shivered. But here again was darkness. Her illusion revived. "'How noble his brow is!' she thought, mistaking a hump on a cushion for Mr. Pope's forehead in the darkness. "'What a weight of genius lives in it! What wit, wisdom, and truth! What a wealth of all those jewels, indeed, for which people are ready to barter their lives! Yours is the only light that burns for ever. But for you the human pilgrimage would be performed in utter darkness. 
Here the coach gave a great lurch as it fell into a rut in Park Lane. Without genius we should be upset and undone. Most august, most lucid of beams. Thus she was apostrophizing the hump on the cushion, when they drove beneath one of the street-lamps in Berkeley Square, and she realized her mistake. Mr. Pope had a forehead no bigger than another man's. "'Wretched man,' she thought, "'how you have deceived me! I took that hump for your forehead. When one sees you plain, how ignoble, how despicable you are! Deformed and weakly, there is nothing to venerate in you, much to pity, most to despise.' Again they were in darkness, and her anger became modified directly she could see nothing but the poet's knees. "'But is it that I am a wretch?' she reflected, once they were in complete obscurity again. "'For base as you may be, am I not still baser? It is you who nourish and protect me, you who scare the wild beast, frighten the savage, make me clothes of the silkworm's wool, and carpets of the sheep's. If I want to worship, have you not provided me with an image of yourself, and set it in the sky? Are not evidences of your care everywhere? How humble, how grateful, how docile should I not be, therefore! Let it be all my joy to serve, honour, and obey you." Here they reached the big lamp-post at the corner of what is now Piccadilly Circus. The light blazed in her eyes, and she saw, beside some degraded creatures of her own sex, two wretched pygmies on a stark desert island. Both were naked, solitary, and defenceless. The one was powerless to help the other. Each had enough to do to look after itself. Looking Mr. Pope full in the face, "'It is equally vain,' she thought, "'for you to think you can protect me, or for me to think I can worship you. The light of truth beats upon us without shadow, and the light of truth is damnably unbecoming to us both." All this time, of course, they went on talking agreeably, as people of birth and education use, about the Queen's temper and the Prime Minister's gout, while the coach went from light to darkness down the Haymarket, along the Strand, up Fleet Street, and reached, at length, her house in Blackfriars. For some time the dark spaces between the lamps had been becoming brighter, and the lamps themselves less bright. That is to say, the sun was rising, and it was in the equable but confused light of a summer's morning, in which everything is seen but nothing is seen distinctly, that they alighted, Mr. Pope handing Orlando from her carriage, and Orlando curtseying Mr. Pope to precede her into her mansion, with the most scrupulous attention to the rights of the graces. From the foregoing passage, however, it must not be supposed that genius, but the disease is now stamped out in the British Isles, the late Lord Tennyson, it is said, being the last person to suffer from it, is constantly alight. For then we should see everything plain, and perhaps should be scorched to death in the process. Rather it resembles the lighthouse in its working, which sends one ray, and then no more for a time, save that genius is much more capricious in its manifestations, and may flash six or seven beams in quick succession as Mr. Pope did that night, and then lapse into darkness for a year or forever. To steer by its beams is therefore impossible, and when the dark spell is upon them, men of genius are, it is said, much like other people. End of section 11
Section twelve of Orlando by Virginia Woolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corrie Samuel. Chapter four, part four. It was happy for Orlando, though at first disappointing, that this should be so, for she now began to live much in the company of men of genius nor were they so different from the rest of us as one might have supposed. Addison, Pope, Swift, proved, she found, to be fond of tea. They liked arbours. They collected little bits of coloured glass. They adored grottoes. Rank was not distasteful to them. Praise was delightful. They wore plum-coloured suits one day, and grey another. Mr. Swift had a fine malacca cane. Mr. Addison scented his handkerchiefs. Mr. Pope suffered with his head. A piece of gossip did not come amiss. Nor were they without their jealousies. We are jotting down a few reflections that came to Orlando higgledy-piggledy. At first she was annoyed with herself for noticing such trifles, and kept a book in which to write down their memorable sayings, but the page remained empty. All the same, her spirits revived and she took to tearing up her cards of invitation to great parties, kept her evenings free, began to look forward to Mr. Pope's visit, to Mr. Addison's, to Mr. Swift's, and so on and so on. If the reader will here refer to The Rape of the Log, to The Spectator, to Gulliver's Travels, he will understand precisely what these mysterious words may mean. Indeed, biographers and critics might save themselves all their labours, if readers would only take this advice. For when we read, Whether the nymph shall break Diana's law, Will some frail china jar receive a flaw, Will stain her honour or her new brocade, Forget her prayers or miss a masquerade, Or lose her heart or necklace at a ball? We know, as if we heard him, How Mr. Pope's tongue flickered like lizards, How his eyes flashed, how his hand trembled, how he loved, how he lied, how he suffered. In short, every secret of a writer's soul, every experience of his life, every quality of his mind, is written large in his works. Yet we require critics to explain the one, and biographers to expound the other. That time hangs heavy on people's hands is the only explanation of the monstrous growth. So. Now that we have read a page or two of The Rape of the Lock, we know exactly why Orlando was so much amused and so much frightened, and so very bright-cheeked and bright-eyed that afternoon. Mrs. Nelly then knocked at the door, to say that Mr. Addison waited on her ladyship. At this Mr. Pope got up with a wry smile, made his congee, and limped off. In came Mr. Addison. Let us, as he takes his seat, read the following passage from the spectator i consider woman as a beautiful romantic animal that may be adorned with furs and feathers pearls and diamonds oars and silks the lynx shall cast its skin at her feet to make her a tippet the peacock parrot and swan shall pay contributions to her muff the sea shall be searched for shells and the rocks for gems and every part of nature furnish out its share towards the embellishment of a creature that is the most consummate work of it. All this I shall indulge them in. 
but as for the petticoat I have been speaking of, I neither can nor will allow it. We hold that gentleman, cocked hat and all, in the hollow of our hands. Look once more into the crystal. Is he not clear to the very wrinkle in his stocking? Does not every ripple and curve of his wit lie exposed before us, and his benignity and his timidity and his urbanity, and the fact that he would marry a countess and die very respectably in the end? All is clear. And when Mr. Addison has said his say, there is a terrific rap at the door, and Mr. Swift, who had these arbitrary ways with him, walks in unannounced. One moment, where is Gulliver's travels? Here it is. Let us read a passage from the voyage to the Hoyhunhums. I enjoyed perfect health of body and tranquillity of mind. I did not find the treachery or inconstancy of a friend, nor the injuries of a secret or open enemy. I had no occasion of bribing, flattering, or pimping, to procure the favour of any great man or of his minion. I wanted no fence against fraud or oppression. Here was neither physician to destroy my body, nor lawyer to ruin my fortune, no informer to watch my words and actions, or forge accusations against me for hire. Here were no gibers, censurers, backbiters, pickpockets, highwaymen, housebreakers, attorneys, boards, buffoons, gamesters, politicians, wits, splenetic, tedious talkers. But stop! Stop your iron pelt of words, lest you flay us all alive, and yourself too. Nothing could be plainer than that violent man. He is so coarse, and yet so clean, so brutal, yet so kind, scorns the whole world, yet talks baby language to a girl, and will die, can we doubt it, in a madhouse. So Orlando poured out tea for them all, and sometimes, when the weather was fine, she carried them down to the country with her, and feasted them royally in the round parlour, which she had hung with their pictures all in a circle, so that Mr. Pope could not say that Mr. Addison came before him, or the other way about. They were very witty, too, but their wit is all in their books, and taught her the most important part of style, which is the natural run of the voice in speaking, a quality which none that has not heard it can imitate, not green even, with all his skill, for it is born of the air, and breaks like a wave on the furniture, and rolls and fades away, and is never to be recaptured, least of all by those who prick up their ears half a century later and try. They taught her this merely by the cadence of their voices in speech, so that her style changed somewhat, and she wrote some very pleasant, witty verses and characters in prose. And so she lavished her wine on them, and put bank-notes, which they took very kindly, beneath their plates at dinner, and accepted their dedications, and thought herself highly honoured by the exchange. Thus time ran on, and Orlando could often be heard saying to herself, with an emphasis which might, perhaps, make the hearer a little suspicious, "'Upon my soul, what a life this is!' for she was still in search of that commodity. But circumstances soon forced her to consider the matter more narrowly. One day she was pouring out tea for Mr. Pope, while, as any one can tell from the verses quoted above, he sat, very bright-eyed, observant, and all crumpled up in a chair by her side. 
"'Lord,' she thought, as she raised the sugar-tongs, "'how women in ages to come will envy me! And yet—she paused, for Mr. Pope needed her attention. And yet, let us finish her thought for her. When anybody says, how future ages will envy me, it is safe to say that they are extremely uneasy at the present moment. Was this life quite so exciting, quite so flattering, quite so glorious as it sounds when the memoir-writer has done his work upon it? For one thing, Orlando had a positive hatred of tea. For another, the intellect, divine as it is, and all worshipful, has a habit of lodging in the most seedy of carcasses, and often, alas, acts the cannibal among the other faculties, so that often, where the mind is biggest, the heart, the senses, magnanimity, charity, tolerance, kindliness, and the rest of them scarcely have room to breathe. Then the high opinion poets have of themselves, then the low one they have of others, then the enmities, injuries, envies, and repartees in which they are constantly engaged, then the volubility with which they impart them, then the rapacity with which they demand sympathy for them. All this, one may whisper, lest the wits may overhear us, makes pouring out tea a more precarious, and indeed more arduous occupation than is generally allowed. Added to which, we whisper again lest the women may overhear us, there is a little secret which men share among them. Lord Chesterfield whispered it to his son with strict injunctions to secrecy. Women are but children of a larger growth. A man of sense only trifles with them, plays with them, humours and flatters them. Which, since children always hear what they are not meant to, and sometimes even grow up, may have somehow leaked out, so that the whole ceremony of pouring out tea is a curious one. A woman knows very well that, though a wit sends her his poems, praises her judgment, solicits her criticism, and drinks her tea, this by no means signifies that he respects her opinions, admires her understanding, or will refuse, though the rapier is denied him, to run her through the body with his pen. All this, we say, whisper it as low as we can, may have leaked out by now, so that even with the cream-jug suspended, and the sugar-tongs distended, the ladies may fidget a little, look out of the window a little, yawn a little, and so let the sugar fall with a great plop, as Orlando did now, into Mr. Pope's tea. Never was any mortal so ready to suspect an insult, or so quick to avenge one, as Mr. Pope. He turned to Orlando, and presented her instantly with the rough draught of a certain famous line in the Characters of Women. Much polish was afterwards bestowed on it, but even in the original it was striking enough. Orlando received it with a curtsy. Mr. Pope left her with a bow. Orlando, to cool her cheeks, for really she felt as if the little man had struck her, strolled in the nut-grove at the bottom of the garden. Soon the cool breezes did their work. To her amazement she found that she was hugely relieved to find herself alone. She watched the merry boatloads rowing up the river. No doubt the sight put her in mind of one or two incidents in her past life. She sat herself down in profound meditation beneath a fine willow-tree. 
There she sat till the stars were in the sky. Then she rose, turned, and went into the house, where she sought her bedroom and locked the door. Now she opened a cupboard in which hung still many of the clothes she had worn as a young man of fashion, and from among them she chose a black velvet suit, richly trimmed with Venetian lace. It was a little out of fashion, indeed, but it fitted her to perfection, and dressed in it she looked the very figure of a noble lord. She took a turn or two before the mirror to make sure that her petticoats had not lost her the freedom of her legs, and then let herself secretly out of doors. It was a fine night early in April, a myriad stars mingling with the light of a sickle moon, which again was enforced by the street lamps, made a light infinitely becoming to the human countenance, and to the architecture of Mr. Wren. Everything appeared in its tenderest form, yet, just as it seemed on the point of dissolution, some drop of silver sharpened it to animation. Thus it was that talk should be, thought Orlando indulging in foolish reverie, that society should be, that friendship should be, that love should be. For, heaven knows why, just as we have lost faith in human intercourse, some random collocation of barns and trees, or a haystack and a wagon, presents us with so perfect a symbol of what is unattainable that we begin the search again. She entered Leicester Square as she made these observations. The buildings had an airy yet formal symmetry, not theirs by day. The canopy of the sky seemed most dexterously washed in to fill up the outline of roof and chimney. A young woman, who sat dejectedly with one arm drooping by her side, the other reposing in her lap, on a seat, beneath a plane-tree in the middle of the square, seemed the very figure of grace, simplicity, and desolation. Orlando swept her hat off to her in the manner of a gallant, paying his addresses to a lady of fashion in a public place. The young woman raised her head. It was of the most exquisite shapeliness. The young woman raised her eyes. Orlando saw them to be of a lustre such as is sometimes seen on teapots, but rarely in a human face. Through the silver glaze the young woman looked up at him, for a man he was to her, appealing hoping, trembling, fearing. She rose, she accepted his arm. For, need we stress the point, she was of the tribe which nightly burnishes their wares, and sets them in order on the common counter to wait the highest bidder. She led Orlando to the room in Gerard Street which was her lodging. To feel her hanging lightly, yet like a suppliant on her arm, roused in Orlando all the feelings which become a man. She looked, she felt, she talked like one. Yet, having been so lately a woman herself, she suspected that the girl's timidity and her hesitating answers, and the very fumbling with the key in the latch, and the fold of her cloak, and the droop of her wrist, were all put on to gratify her masculinity. Upstairs they went and the pains which the poor creature had been at to decorate her room, and hide the fact that she had no other, deceived Orlando not a moment. The deception roused her scorn, the truth roused her pity. One thing showing through the other bred the oddest assortment of feeling, so that she did not know whether to laugh or to cry. Meanwhile Nell, as the girl called herself, unbuttoned her gloves, carefully concealed the left-hand thumb which wanted mending, 
then drew behind a screen, where, perhaps, she rouged her cheeks, arranged her clothes, fixed a new kerchief round her neck, all the time prattling, as women do, to amuse her lover, though Orlando could have sworn, from the tone of her voice, that her thoughts were elsewhere. When all was ready, out she came, prepared. But here Orlando could stand it no longer. In the strangest torment of anger, merriment, and pity, she flung off all disguise and admitted herself a woman. At this Nell burst into such a roar of laughter as might have been heard across the way. "'Well, my dear,' she said, when she had somewhat recovered, "'I'm by no means sorry to hear it, for the plain dunstable of the matter is—' And it was remarkable how soon, on discovering that they were of the same sex, her manner changed and she dropped her plaintive, appealing ways. "'The plain dunstable of the matter is that I'm not in the mood for the society of the other sex to-night. Indeed, I'm in the devil of a fix.' Whereupon, drawing up the fire and stirring a bowl of punch, she told Orlando the whole story of her life. Since it is Orlando's life that engages us at present, we need not relate the adventures of the other lady. But it is certain that Orlando had never known the hours speed faster or more merrily, though Mistress Nell had not a particle of wit about her, and when the name of Mr. Pope came up in talk, asked innocently if he were connected with the peruke-maker of that name in German Street. Yet, to Orlando, such is the charm of ease and the seduction of beauty, this poor girl's talk, larded though it was with the commonest expressions of the street-corners, tasted like wine after the fine phrases she had been used to, and she was forced to the conclusion that there was something in the sneer of Mr. Pope, in the condescension of Mr. Addison, and in the secret of Lord Chesterfield, which took away her relish for the society of wits, deeply though she must continue to respect their works. These poor creatures, she ascertained, for Nell bought Prue, and Prue Kitty, and Kitty Rose, had a society of their own, of which they now elected her a member. Each would tell the story of the adventures which had landed her in her present way of life. Several were the natural daughters of earls, and one was a good deal nearer than she should have been to the king's person. None was too wretched or too poor but to have some ring or handkerchief in her pocket which stood her in lieu of pedigree. So they would draw round the punch-bowl, which Orlando made it her business to furnish generously, and many were the fine tales they told, and many the amusing observations they made, for it cannot be denied that when women get together—but hist! they are always careful to see that the doors are shut, and that not a word of it gets into print. All they desire is—but hist again! is that not a man's step on the stair? All they desire, we were about to say, when the gentleman took the very words out of our mouths. Women have no desires, says this gentleman, coming into Nell's parlour, only affectations. Without desires, she has served him and he is gone, their conversation cannot be of the slightest interest to any one. It is well known, says Mr. S. W., that when they lack the stimulus of the other sex, women can find nothing to say to each other. When they are alone, they do not talk, they scratch. And since they cannot talk together, and scratching cannot continue without interruption, and it is well known—Mr. T. R. has proved it—that women are incapable of any feeling of affection for their own sex, and hold each other in the greatest aversion. 
what can we suppose that women do when they seek out each other's society? As that is not a question that can engage the attention of a sensible man, let us, who enjoy the immunity of all biographers and historians from any sex whatever, pass it over, and merely state that Orlando professed great enjoyment in the society of her own sex, and leave it to the gentlemen to prove, as they are very fond of doing, that this is impossible. But to give an exact and particular account of Orlando's life at this time becomes more and more out of the question. As we peer and grope in the ill-lit, ill-paved, ill-ventilated courtyards that lay about Gerrard Street and Drury Lane at that time, we seem to catch sight of her, and then again to lose it. The task is made still more difficult by the fact that she found it convenient at this time to change frequently from one set of clothes to another. Thus she often occurs in contemporary memoirs as Lord So-and-so, who was in fact her cousin. Her bounty is ascribed to him, and it is he who is said to have written the poems that were really hers. She had, it seems, no difficulty in sustaining the different parts, for her sex changed far more frequently than those who have worn only one set of clothing can conceive. Nor can there be any doubt that she reaped a twofold harvest by this device. The pleasures of life were increased, and its experiences multiplied. For the probity of breeches she exchanged the seductiveness of petticoats, and enjoyed the love of both sexes equally. So then one may sketch her spending her morning in a china robe of ambiguous gender among her books, then receiving a client or two, for she had many scores of suppliants, in the same garment. Then she would take a turn in the garden and clip the nut-trees, for which knee-breeches were convenient. Then she would change into a flowered taffeta, which best suited a drive to Richmond and a proposal of marriage from some great nobleman, and so back to town where she would don a snuff-coloured gown like a lawyer's, and visit the courts to hear how her cases were doing. For her fortune was wasting hourly, and the suits seemed no nearer consummation than they had been a hundred years ago. And so, finally, when night came, she would more often than not become a nobleman complete from head to toe, and walk the streets in search of adventure. Returning from some of these junketings, of which there were many stories told at the time, as that she fought a duel, served on one of the king's ships as a captain, was seen to dance naked on a balcony, and fled with a certain lady to the low countries, where the lady's husband followed them. But of the truth or otherwise of these stories we express no opinion. Returning from whatever her occupation may have been, she made a point sometimes of passing beneath the windows of a coffee-house, where she could see the wits without being seen, and could thus fancy from their gestures what wise, witty, or spiteful things they were saying without hearing a word of them, which was perhaps an advantage. And once she stood half an hour watching three shadows on the blind, drinking tea together in a house in Bolt Court. Never was any play so absorbing. She wanted to cry out, Bravo! Bravo! For, to be sure, what a fine drama it was! What a page torn from the thickest volume of human life! There was the little shadow with the pouting lips, fidgeting this way and that on his chair, uneasy, petulant, officious. There was the bent female shadow, crooking a finger in the cup to feel how deep the tea was, for she was blind. And there was the Roman-looking, rolling shadow in the big armchair, 
he who twisted his fingers so oddly, and jerked his head from side to side, and swallowed down the tea in such vast gulps. Dr. Johnson, Mr. Boswell, and Mrs. Williams—those were the shadow's names. So absorbed was she in the sight, that she forgot to think how other ages would have envied her, though it seems probable that on this occasion they would. She was content to gaze and gaze. At length Mr. Boswell rose. He saluted the old woman with tart asperity. But with what humility did he not abase himself before the great Roman shadow, who now rose to its full height, and rocking somewhat as he stood there, rolled out the most magnificent phrases that ever left human lips. So Orlando thought them, though she never heard a word that any of the three shadows said as they sat there drinking tea. At length she came home one night after one of these saunterings, and mounted to her bedroom. She took off her laced coat, and stood there in shirt and breeches looking out of the window. There was something stirring in the air which forbade her to go to bed. A white haze lay over the town, for it was a frosty night in midwinter, and a magnificent vista lay all round her. She could see St. Paul's, the Tower, Westminster Abbey, with all the spires and domes of the city churches, the smooth bulk of its banks, the opulent and ample curves of its halls and meeting-places. On the north rose the smooth, shorn heights of Hampstead, and in the west the streets and squares of Mayfair shone out in one clear radiance. Upon this serene and orderly prospect the stars looked down, glittering, positive, hard, from a cloudless sky. In the extreme clearness of the atmosphere, the line of every roof, the cowl of every chimney was perceptible, even the cobbles in the streets showed distinct one from another, and Orlando could not help comparing this orderly scene with the irregular and huddled purlieus which had been the city of London in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Then, she remembered, the city, if such one could call it, lay crowded, a mere huddle and conglomeration of houses, under her windows at Blackfriars. The stars reflected themselves in deep pits of stagnant water which lay in the middle of the streets. A black shadow at the corner where the wine-shop used to stand was, as likely as not, the corpse of a murdered man. She could remember the cries of many a one wounded in such night brawlings when she was a little boy, held to the diamond-paned window in her nurse's arms. Troops of ruffians, men and women, unspeakably interlaced, lurched down the streets, trolling out wild songs with jewels flashing in their ears, and knives gleaming in their fists. On such a night as this the impermeable tangle of the forests on Highgate and Hampstead would be outlined, writhing in contorted intricacy against the sky. Here and there, on one of the hills which rose above London, was a stark gallows-tree, with a corpse nailed to rot or parch on its cross, for danger and insecurity, lust and violence, poetry and filth, swarmed over the tortuous Elizabethan highways, and buzzed and stank. Orlando could remember even now the smell of them on a hot night, in the little rooms and narrow pathways of the city. Now, she leant out of her window, all was light, order and serenity. There was the faint rattle of a coach on the cobbles. She heard the far-away cry of the night watchman. Just twelve o'clock on a frosty morning. 
No sooner had the words left his lips than the first stroke of midnight sounded. Orlando, then, for the first time, noticed a small cloud, gathered behind the dome of St. Paul's. As the strokes sounded, the cloud increased, and she saw it darken and spread with extraordinary speed. At the same time a light breeze rose, and by the time the sixth stroke of midnight had struck, the whole of the eastern sky was covered with an irregular moving darkness, though the sky to the west and the north stayed as clear as ever. Then the cloud spread north. Height upon height above the city was engulfed by it. Only Mayfair, with all its lights shining, burnt more brilliantly than ever by contrast. With the eighth stroke some hurrying tatters of cloud sprawled over Piccadilly. They seemed to mass themselves, and to advance with extraordinary rapidity towards the West End. As the ninth, tenth, and eleventh strokes struck, a huge blackness sprawled over the whole of London. With the twelfth stroke of midnight, the darkness was complete. A turbulent welter of cloud covered the city. All was darkness, all was doubt, all was confusion. The eighteenth century was over, the nineteenth century had begun. End of section twelve. Section thirteen of Orlando by Virginia Woolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corey Samuel. Chapter five, part one. The great cloud which hung, not only over London, but over the whole of the British Isles on the first day of the nineteenth century, stayed or rather did not stay, for it was buffeted about constantly by blustering gales, long enough to have extraordinary consequences upon those who lived beneath its shadow. A change seemed to have come over the climate of England. Rain fell frequently, but only in fitful gusts, which were no sooner over than they began again. The sun shone, of course, but it was so girt about with clouds, and the air was so saturated with water, that its beams were discoloured, and purples, oranges, and reds of a dull sort took the place of the more positive landscapes of the eighteenth century. Under this bruised and sullen canopy the green of the cabbages was less intense, and the white of the snow was muddied. But what was worse? Damp now began to make its way into every house—damp, which is the most insidious of all enemies, for while the sun can be shut out by blinds, and the frost roasted by a hot fire, damp steals in while we sleep. Damp is silent, imperceptible, ubiquitous. Damp swells the wood, furs the kettle, rusts the iron, rots the stone. So gradual is the process, that it is not until we pick up some chest of drawers or coal-scuttle, and the whole thing drops to pieces in our hands, that we suspect even that the disease is at work. Thus, stealthily and imperceptibly, none marking the exact day or hour of the change, the constitution of England was altered and nobody knew it. Everywhere the effects were felt. The hardy country gentleman, who had sat down gladly to a meal of ale and beef, in a room designed perhaps by the brothers Adam, with classic dignity, now felt chilly.
rugs appeared, beards were grown, trousers were fastened tight under the instep. The chill which he felt in his legs the country gentleman soon transferred to his house. Furniture was muffled, walls and tables were covered, nothing was left bare. Then a change of diet became essential. The muffin was invented, and the crumpet. Coffee supplanted the after-dinner port, and as coffee led to a drawing-room in which to drink it, and a drawing-room to glass cases, and glass cases to artificial flowers, and artificial flowers to mantelpieces, and mantelpieces to pianofortes, and pianofortes to drawing-room ballads, and drawing-room ballads, skipping a stage or two, to innumerable little dogs, mats, and china ornaments, the home, which had become extremely important, was completely altered. Outside the house—it was another effect of the damp—ivy grew in unparalleled profusion. Houses that had been of bare stone were smothered in greenery. No garden, however formal its original design, lacked a shrubbery, a wilderness, a maze. What light penetrated to the bedrooms where children were born was naturally of an obfusk green, and what light penetrated to the drawing-rooms where grown men and women lived came through curtains of brown and purple plush. But the change did not stop at outward things. The damp struck within. Men felt the chill in their hearts, the damp in their minds. In a desperate effort to snuggle their feelings into some sort of warmth, one subterfuge was tried after another. Love, birth, and death were all swaddled in a variety of fine phrases. The sexes drew further and further apart. No open conversation was tolerated. Evasions and concealments were sedulously practised on both sides. And just as the ivy and the evergreen rioted in the damp earth outside, so did the same fertility show itself within. The life of the average woman was a succession of childbirths. She married at nineteen, and had fifteen or eighteen children by the time she was thirty, for twins abounded. Thus the British Empire came into existence, and thus, for there is no stopping damp, it gets into the ink-pot as it gets into the woodwork. Sentences swelled, adjectives multiplied, lyrics became epics, and little trifles that had been essays a column long were now encyclopedias in ten or twenty volumes. But Eusebius Chubb shall be our witness to the effect this all had upon the mind of a sensitive man who could do nothing to stop it. There is a passage, towards the end of his memoirs, where he describes how, after writing thirty-five folio pages one morning, all about nothing, he screwed the lid of his ink-pot and went for a turn in his garden. Soon he found himself involved in the shrubbery. Innumerable leaves creaked and glistened above his head. He seemed to himself to crush the mould of a million more under his feet. Thick smoke exuded from a damp bonfire at the end of the garden. He reflected that no fire on earth could ever hope to consume that vast vegetable encumbrance. Wherever he looked, vegetation was rampant. Cucumbers came scrolloping across the grass to his feet. Giant cauliflowers towered deck above deck, till they rivalled, to his disordered imagination, the elm-trees themselves. 
hens laid incessantly eggs of no special tint. Then, remembering with a sigh his own fecundity, and his poor wife Jane, now in the throes of her fifteenth confinement indoors, how, he asked himself, could he blame the fowls? He looked upwards into the sky. Did not heaven itself, or that great frontispiece of heaven, which is the sky, indicate the ascent, indeed the instigation, of the heavenly hierarchy? For there, winter or summer, year in, year out, the clouds turned and tumbled, like whales, he pondered, or elephants, rather. But no, there was no escaping the simile which was pressed upon him from a thousand airy acres. The whole sky itself, as it spread wide above the British Isles, was nothing but a vast feather-bed, and the undistinguished fecundity of the garden, the bedroom and the hen-roost, was copied there. He went indoors, wrote the passage quoted above, laid his head in a gas-oven, and when they found him later he was past revival. While this went on in every part of England, it was all very well for Orlando to mew herself in her house at Blackfriars, and pretend that the climate was the same, that one could still say what one liked, and wear knee-breeches or skirts as the fancy took one. Even she, at length, was forced to acknowledge that times were changed. One afternoon, in the early part of the century, she was driving through St. James's Park in her old panelled coach, when one of those sunbeams, which occasionally, though not often, managed to come to earth, struggled through, marbling the clouds with strange prismatic colours as it passed. Such a sight was sufficiently strange, after the clear and uniform skies of the eighteenth century, to cause her to pull the window down and look at it. The puce and flamingo clouds made her think, with a pleasurable anguish, which proves that she was insensibly afflicted with the damp already, of dolphins dying in Ionian seas. But what was her surprise when, as it struck the earth, the sunbeam seemed to call forth, or to light up, a pyramid, hecatomb or trophy, for it had something of a banquet-table air. A conglomeration, at any rate, of the most heterogeneous and ill-assorted objects, piled higgledy-piggledy in a vast mound, where the statue of Queen Victoria now stands. Draped about a vast cross of fretted and florated gold were widow's weeds and bridal veils. Hooked on to other excrescences were crystal palaces, bassinets, military helmets, memorial wreaths, trousers, whiskers, wedding-cakes, cannon, Christmas-trees, telescopes, extinct monsters, globes, maps elephants, and mathematical instruments, the whole supported like a gigantic coat of arms, on the right side by a female figure clothed in flowing white, on the left by a portly gentleman wearing a frock-coat and sponge-bag trousers. The incongruity of the objects, the association of the fully clothed and the partly draped, the garishness of the different colours, and their plaid-like juxtapositions, afflicted Orlando with the most profound dismay. She had never, in all her life, seen anything at once so indecent, so hideous, and so monumental. It might, and indeed it must be, the effect of the sun on the waterlogged air. It would vanish with the first breeze that blew. 
but for all that it looked, as she drove past, as if it were destined to endure for ever. Nothing, she felt, sinking back into the corner of her coach. No wind, rain, sun, or thunder could ever demolish that garish erection. Only the noses would mottle and the trumpets would rust, but there they would remain, pointing east, west, south, and north, eternally. She looked back as her coach swept up Constitution Hill. Yes, there it was, still beaming placidly in a light which—she pulled her watch out of her fob—was, of course, the light of twelve o'clock midday. None other could be so prosaic, so matter-of-fact, so impervious to any hint of dawn or sunset, so seemingly calculated to last for ever. She was determined not to look again. Already she felt the tides of her blood run sluggishly. But what was more peculiar, a blush, vivid and singular, overspread her cheeks as she passed Buckingham Palace, and her eyes seemed forced by a superior power down upon her knees. Suddenly she saw with a start that she was wearing black breeches. She never ceased blushing till she had reached her country house, which, considering the time it takes four horses to trot thirty miles, will be taken, we hope, as a signal proof of her chastity. Once there, she followed what had now become the most imperious need of her nature, and wrapped herself as well as she could in a damask quilt, which she snatched from her bed. She explained to the widow Bartholomew, who had succeeded good old Grimsditch as housekeeper, that she felt chilly. "'So do we all, my lady,' said the widow, heaving a profound sigh. "'The walls is sweating,' she said, with a curious, lugubrious complacency. And sure enough, she had only to lay her hand on the oak panels for the fingerprints to be marked there. The ivy had grown so profusely that many windows were now sealed up. The kitchen was so dark that they could scarcely tell a kettle from a cullender. A poor black cat had been mistaken for coals and shovelled on the fire. Most of the maids were already wearing three or four red flannel petticoats, though the month was August. "'But is it true, my lady?' the good woman asked, hugging herself, while the golden crucifix heaved on her bosom that the Queen, bless her, is wearing a—what do you call it—a—the good woman hesitated and blushed—a crinoline. Orlando helped her out with it, for the word had reached Blackfriars. Mrs. Bartholomew nodded. The tears were already running down her cheeks, but as she wept she smiled, for it was pleasant to weep. Were they not all of them weak women? Wearing crinolines the better to conceal the fact the great fact, the only fact, but nevertheless the deplorable fact, which every modest woman did her best to deny until denial was impossible, the fact that she was about to bear a child, to bear fifteen or twenty children indeed, so that most of a modest woman's life was spent, after all, in denying what, on one day at least of every year, was made obvious. The muffins is keeping hot said Mrs. Bartholomew, mopping up her tears, in the library. And, wrapped in a damask bed-quilt, to a dish of muffins Orlando now sat down. "'The muffins is keeping hot in the library,' Orlando minced out the horrid cockney phrase in Mrs. Bartholomew's refined cockney accents as she drank. 
but no, she detested the mild fluid, her tea. It was in this very room, she remembered, that Queen Elizabeth had stood astride the fireplace with a flagon of beer in her hand, which she suddenly dashed on the table when Lord Burley tactlessly used the imperative instead of the subjunctive. "'Little man, little man,' Orlando could hear her say, "'is must a word to be addressed to princes.' And down came the flagon on the table, there was the mark of it still. But when Orlando leapt to her feet, as the mere thought of that great queen commanded, the bed-quilt tripped her up, and she fell back in her armchair with a curse. To-morrow she would have to buy twenty yards or more of black bombazine, she supposed, to make a skirt. And then—here she blushed—she would have to buy a crinoline. And then— here she blushed, a bassinet, and then another crinoline, and so on. The blushes came and went with the most exquisite iteration of modesty and shame imaginable. One might see the spirit of the age blowing, now hot, now cold, upon her cheeks. And if the spirit of the age blew a little unequally, the crinoline being blushed for before the husband, her ambiguous position must excuse her. Even her sex was still in dispute, and the irregular life she had lived before. At length the colour on her cheeks resumed its stability, and it seemed as if the spirit of the age—if such indeed it were—lay dormant for a time. Then Orlando felt in the bosom of her shirt, as if for some locket or relic of lost affection, and drew out no such thing, but a roll of paper—sea-stained, blood-stained travel-stained, the manuscript of her poem, The Oak Tree. She had carried this about with her for so many years now, and in such hazardous circumstances, that many of the pages were stained, some were torn, while the straits she had been in for writing-paper when with the gypsies had forced her to overscore the margins and cross the lines, till the manuscript looked like a piece of darning most conscientiously carried out. She turned back to the first page, and read the date, 1586, written in her own boyish hand. She had been working at it for close three hundred years now. It was time to make an end. Meanwhile she began turning and dipping and reading and skipping and thinking as she read, how very little she had changed all these years. She had been a gloomy boy, in love with death, as boys are and then she had been amorous and florid, and then she had been sprightly and satirical, and sometimes she had tried prose, and sometimes she had tried drama. Yet through all these changes she had remained, she reflected, fundamentally the same. She had the same brooding, meditative temper, the same love of animals and nature, the same passion for the country and the seasons. After all, she thought, getting up and going to the window. Nothing has changed. The house, the garden, are precisely as they were. Not a chair has been moved, not a trinket sold. There are the same walks, the same lawns, the same trees, and the same pool, which, I dare say, has the same carp in it. True, Queen Victoria is on the throne, and not Queen Elizabeth, but what difference— No sooner had the thought taken shape than— as if to rebuke it, the door was flung wide, and in marched Basket, the butler, followed by Bartholomew, the housekeeper, to clear away tea. 
Orlando, who had just dipped her pen in the ink, and was about to indite some reflection upon the eternity of all things, was much annoyed to be impeded by a blot, which spread and meandered round her pen. It was some infirmity of the quill, she supposed. It was split or dirty. She dipped it again. The blot increased. She tried to go on with what she was saying. No words came. Next she began to decorate the blot with wings and whiskers, till it became a round-headed monster, something between a bat and a wombat. But as for writing poetry with Basket and Bartholomew in the room, it was impossible. No sooner had she said, impossible, than to her astonishment and alarm, the pen began to curve and caracal with the smoothest possible fluency. Her page was written in the neatest, sloping Italian hand, with the most insipid verse she had ever read in her life. I am myself but a vile link, amid life's weary chain. But I have spoken hallowed words, oh, do not say in vain. Will the young maiden, when her tears, alone in moonlight shine, tears for the absent and the loved, murmur? She wrote without a stop, as Bartholomew and Basket grunted and groaned about the room, mending the fire, picking up the muffins. Again she dipped her pen, and off it went. She was so changed, the soft carnation cloud, once mantling o'er her cheek like that which Eve hangs over the sky, glowing with roseate hue, had faded into paleness, broken by bright burning blushes, torches of the tomb. But here, by an abrupt movement, she spilt the ink over the page and blotted it from human sight, she hoped for ever. She was all of a quiver, all of a stew. Nothing more repulsive could be imagined than to feel the ink flowing thus in cascades of involuntary inspiration. What had happened to her? Was it the damp? Was it Bartholomew? Was it Basket? What was it? she demanded. But the room was empty. No one answered her, unless the dripping of the rain in the ivy could be taken for an answer. Meanwhile she became conscious, as she stood at the window, of an extraordinary tingling and vibration all over her, as if she were made of a thousand wires, upon which some breeze or errant fingers were playing scales. Now her toes tingled, now her marrow. She had the queerest sensations about the thigh-bones. Her hairs seemed to erect themselves. Her arms sang and twanged, as the telegraph-wires would be singing and twanging in twenty years or so. But all this agitation seemed at length to concentrate in her hands, and then in one hand, and then in one finger of one hand, and finally to contract itself, so that it made a ring of quivering sensibility about the second finger of the left hand. And when she raised it to see what caused this agitation, she saw nothing, nothing but the vast solitary emerald which Queen Elizabeth had given her. And was that not enough? she asked. It was of the finest water. It was worth ten thousand pounds at least. The vibration seemed, in the oddest way, but remember we are dealing with some of the darkest manifestations of the human soul, to say, no, that is not enough, and further to assume a note of interrogation, as though it were asking, what did it mean, this hiatus, 
this strange oversight, till poor Orlando felt positively ashamed of the second finger of her left hand, without in the least knowing why. At this moment Bartholomew came in to ask which dress she should lay out for dinner, and Orlando, whose senses were much quickened, instantly glanced at Bartholomew's left hand, and instantly perceived what she had never noticed before. A thick ring of rather jaundiced yellow, circling the third finger, where her own was bare. "'Let me look at your ring, Bartholomew,' she said, stretching her hand to take it. At this Bartholomew made as if she had been struck in the breast by a rogue. She started back a pace or two, clenched her hand, and flung it away from her with a gesture that was noble in the extreme. "'No,' she said, with resolute dignity. Her ladyship might look if she pleased, but as for taking off her wedding-ring, not the Archbishop nor the Pope nor Queen Victoria on her throne could force her to do that. Her Thomas had put it on her finger twenty-five years, six months, three weeks ago. She had slept in it, worked in it, washed in it, prayed in it, and proposed to be buried in it. In fact, Orlando understood her to say, but her voice was much broken with emotion, that it was by the gleam on her wedding-ring that she would be assigned her station among the angels, and its lustre would be tarnished for ever if she let it out of her keeping for a second. "'Heaven help us,' said Orlando, standing at the window and watching the pigeons at their pranks. "'What a world we live in! What a world, to be sure!' Its complexities amazed her. It now seemed to her that the whole world was ringed with gold. She went in to dinner. Wedding-rings abounded. She went to church. Wedding-rings were everywhere. She drove out. Gold or pinchbeck, thin, thick, plain, smooth, they glowed dully on every hand. Rings filled the jewellers' shops, not the flashing pastes and diamonds of Orlando's recollection, but simple bands without a stone in them. At the same time she began to notice a new habit among the town-people. In the old days one would meet a boy trifling with a girl under a hawthorn-hedge frequently enough. Orlando had flicked many a couple with the tip of her whip, and laughed and passed on. Now all that was changed. Couples trudged and plodded in the middle of the road, indissolubly linked together. The woman's right hand was invariably passed through the man's left and her fingers were firmly gripped by his. Often it was not till the horses' noses were on them that they budged, and then, though they moved, it was all in one piece, heavily, to the side of the road. Orlando could only suppose that some new discovery had been made about the race, that they were somehow stuck together, couple after couple, but who had made it and when she could not guess. It did not seem to be nature. She looked at the doves and the rabbits and the elk-hounds, and she could not see that nature had changed her ways or mended them, since the time of Elizabeth at least. There was no indissoluble alliance among the brutes that she could see. Could it be Queen Victoria, then, or Lord Melbourne? Was it from them that the great discovery of marriage proceeded? Yet the Queen, she pondered, was said to be fond of dogs, and Lord Melbourne, she had heard, was said to be fond of women. It was strange. It was distasteful. Indeed, there was something in this indissolubility of bodies which was repugnant to her sense of decency and sanitation. 
Her ruminations, however, were accompanied by such a tingling and twanging of the afflicted finger, that she could scarcely keep her ideas in order. They were languishing and ogling like a housemaid's fancies. They made her blush. There was nothing for it but to buy one of those ugly bands and wear it like the rest. This she did, slipping it, overcome with shame, upon her finger in the shadow of a curtain, but without avail. The tingling persisted more violently, more indignantly than ever. She did not sleep a wink that night. Next morning, when she took the pen up to write, either she could think of nothing, and the pen made one large lachrymose blot after another, or it ambled off, more alarmingly still, into mellifluous fluencies about early death and corruption, which were worse than no thinking at all. For it would seem—her case proved it—that we write, not with the fingers, but with the whole person. The nerve which controls the pen winds itself about every fibre of our being, threads the heart, pierces the liver. Though the seat of her trouble seemed to be the left hand, she could feel herself poisoned through and through, and was forced at length to consider the most desperate of remedies, which was to yield completely and submissively to the spirit of the age, and take a husband. That this was much against her natural temperament has been sufficiently made plain. When the sound of the Archduke's chariot-wheels died away, the cry that rose to her lips was, Life, a lover! not, life a husband. And it was in pursuit of this aim that she had gone to town and run about the world, as has been shown in the previous chapter. Such is the indomitable nature of the spirit of the age, however, that it batters down any one who tries to make stand against it, far more effectually than those who bend its own way. Orlando had inclined herself naturally to the Elizabethan spirit, to the Restoration spirit, to the spirit of the eighteenth century, and had, in consequence, scarcely been aware of the change from one age to the other. But the spirit of the nineteenth century was antipathetic to her in the extreme, and thus it took her and broke her, and she was aware of her defeat at its hands as she had never been before. For it is probable that the human spirit has its place in time assigned to it. Some are born of this age, some of that. And now that Orlando was grown a woman, a year or two past thirty, indeed, the lines of her character were fixed, and to bend them the wrong way was intolerable. End of section 13、section、14 of Orlando by Virginia Woolf This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, Please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corrie Samuel. Chapter Five, Part Two. So she stood mournfully at the drawing-room window, Bartholomew had so christened the library, dragged down by the weight of the crinoline which she had submissively adopted. It was heavier and more drab than any dress she had yet worn. None had ever so impeded her movements. No longer could she stride through the garden with her dogs, or run lightly to the high mound and fling herself beneath the oak-tree. Her skirts collected damp leaves and straw. The plumed hat tossed on the breeze. The thin shoes were quickly soaked and mud-caked. Her muscles had lost their pliancy. 
she became nervous lest there should be robbers behind the wainscot, and afraid, for the first time in her life, of ghosts in the corridors. All these things inclined her, step by step, to submit to the new discovery, whether Queen Victoria's or another's, that each man, and each woman, has another allotted to it for life, whom it supports, by whom it is supported, till death do them part. It would be a comfort, she felt, to lean, to sit down, yes, to lie down, never, never, never to get up again. Thus did the spirit work upon her, for all her past pride, and as she came sloping down the scale of emotion to this lowly and unaccustomed lodging-place, those twangings and tinglings, which had been so captitious and so interrogative, modulated into the sweetest melodies, till it seemed as if angels were plucking harp-strings with white fingers, and her whole being was pervaded by a seraphic harmony. But whom could she lean upon? She asked that question of the wild autumn winds, for it was now October, and wet as usual. Not the Archduke. He had married a very great lady, and had hunted hares in Romania these many years now. Nor Mr. M. He was become a Catholic. Nor the Marquis of C. He made sacks in Botany Bay. Nor the Lord O. He had long been food for fishes. One way or another, all her old cronies were gone now, and the knells and the kits of Drury Lane, much though she favoured them, scarcely did to lean upon. Whom? she asked, casting her eyes upon the revolving clouds, clasping her hands as she knelt on the window-sill, and looking the very image of appealing womanhood as she did so. Can I lean upon? Her words formed themselves, her hands clasped themselves, involuntarily, just as her pen had written of its own accord. It was not Orlando who spoke, but the spirit of the age. But whichever it was, nobody answered it. The rooks were tumbling pell-mell among the violet clouds of autumn. The rain had stopped at last, and there was an iridescence in the sky which tempted her to put on her plumed hat and her little stringed shoes, and stroll out before dinner. "'Everybody is mated except myself,' she mused, as she trailed disconsolately across the courtyard. There were the rooks. Canute and Pippin, even, transitory as their alliances were, still each this evening seemed to have a partner. Whereas I, who am mistress of it all, Orlando thought, glancing as she passed at the innumerable emblazoned windows of the hall, am single, am mateless, am alone. Such thoughts had never entered her head before. Now they bore her down unescapably. Instead of thrusting the gate open, she tapped with a gloved hand for the porter to unfasten it for her. One must lean on some one, she thought, if it is only on a porter, and half wished to stay behind and help him grill his chop on a bucket of fiery coals, but was too timid to ask it. So she strayed out into the park alone, faltering at first, and apprehensive, lest there might be poachers or gamekeepers or even errand-boys to marvel that a great lady should walk alone. At every step she glanced nervously, lest some male form should be hiding behind a furze-bush, 
or some savage cow be lowering its horns to toss her. But there were only the rooks flaunting in the sky. A steel-blue plume from one of them fell among the heather. She loved wild bird's feathers. She had used to collect them as a boy. She picked it up and stuck it in her hat. The air blew upon her spirit somewhat and revived it. As the rooks went whirling and wheeling above her head, and feather after feather fell gleaming through the purplish air, she followed them, her long cloak floating behind her, over the moor, up the hill. She had not walked so far for years. Six feathers had she picked from the grass and drawn between her fingers, and pressed to her lips to feel their smooth, glinting plumage, when she saw, gleaming on the hillside, a silver pool, mysterious as the lake into which Sir Bedivere flung the sword of Arthur. A single feather quivered in the air, and fell into the middle of it. Then some strange ecstasy came over her. Some wild notion she had of following the birds to the rim of the world, and flinging herself on the spongy turf, and there drinking forgetfulness, while the rook's hoarse laughter sounded over her. She quickened her pace, she ran, she tripped, the tough heather-roots flung her to the ground. Her ankle was broken, she could not rise. But there she lay content. The scent of the bog-myrtle and the meadow-sweet was in her nostrils, the rook's hoarse laughter was in her ears. "'I have found my mate,' she murmured. It is the moor. I am nature's bride," she whispered, giving herself in rapture to the cold embraces of the grass, as she lay, folded in her cloak, in the hollow by the pool. Here I will lie. A feather fell upon her brow. I have found a greener laurel than the bay. My forehead will be cool always. These are wild birds' feathers, the owls, the night-jars. I shall dream wild dreams. My hands shall wear no wedding-ring," she continued, slipping it from her finger. The roots shall twine about them. Ah! she sighed, pressing her head luxuriously on its spongy pillow. I have sought happiness through many ages and not found it, fame and missed it, love and not known it, life, and behold, death is better. I have known many men and many women," she continued. None have I understood. It is better that I should lie at peace here with only the sky above me, as the gypsy told me years ago. That was in Turkey." And she looked straight up into the marvellous golden foam into which the clouds had churned themselves, and saw next moment a track in it, and camels passing in single file through the rocky desert, among clouds of red dust. And then, when the camels had passed, there were only mountains, very high and full of clefts, and with pinnacles of rock, and she fancied she heard goat-bells ringing in their passes, and in their folds were fields of irises and gentian. So the sky changed, and her eyes slowly lowered themselves down and down, till they came to the rain-darkened earth, and saw the great hump of the South Downs, flowing in one wave along the coast. And where the land parted, there was the sea, the sea with ships passing. And she fancied she heard a gun far out at sea, and thought at first, that's the Armada. 
and then thought, no, it's Nelson, and then remembered how those wars were over, and the ships were busy merchant ships, and the sails on the winding river were those of pleasure-boats. She saw, too, cattle sprinkled on the dark fields, sheep and cows, and she saw the lights coming here and there in farmhouse windows, and lanterns moving among the cattle, as the shepherd went his rounds and the cowman, and then the lights went out, and the stars rose and tangled themselves about the sky. Indeed, she was falling asleep, with the wet feathers on her face, and her ear pressed to the ground, when she heard, deep within, some hammer on an anvil, or was it a heart beating? Tick-tock, tick-tock, so it hammered, so it beat, the anvil or the heart in the middle of the earth, until, as she listened, she thought it changed to the trot of a horse's hoofs. One, two, three, four, she counted. Then she heard a stumble. Then, as it came nearer and nearer, she could hear the crack of a twig and the suck of the wet bog in its hoofs. The horse was almost on her. She sat upright. Towering dark against the yellow-slashed sky of dawn, with the plovers rising and falling about him, she saw a man on horseback. He started. The horse stopped. "'Madam!' the man cried, leaping to the ground. "'You're hurt!' "'I'm dead, sir,' she replied. A few minutes later they became engaged. The morning after, as they sat at breakfast, he told her his name. It was Marmaduke Bonthrop Shelmardine, Esquire. "'I knew it,' she said, for there was something romantic and chivalrous passionate, melancholy yet determined about him, which went with the wild, dark-bloomed name. A name which had, in her mind, the steel-blue gleam of rooks' wings, the hoarse laughter of their cores, the snake-like twisting descent of their feathers in a silver pool, and a thousand other things which will be described presently. "'Mine is Orlando,' she said. He had guessed it for if you see a ship in full sail coming with the sun on it, proudly sweeping across the Mediterranean from the South Seas, one says at once, "'Orlando,' he explained. In fact, though their acquaintance had been so short, they had guessed, as always happens between lovers, everything of any importance about each other in two seconds at the utmost, and it now remained only to fill in such unimportant details as what they were called where they lived, or whether they were beggars or people of substance. He had a castle in the Hebrides, but it was ruined, he told her. Gannets feasted in the banqueting-hall. He had been a soldier and a sailor, and had explored the east. He was on his way now to join his brig at Falmouth, but the wind had fallen, and it was only when the gale blew from the south-west that he could put out to sea. Orlando looked hastily from the breakfast-room window at the gilt leopard on the weather-vane. Mercifully its tail pointed due east, and was steady as a rock. "'Oh, Shell, don't leave me!' she cried. "'I'm passionately in love with you,' she said. No sooner had the words left her mouth than an awful suspicion rushed into both their minds simultaneously. "'You're a woman, Shell!' she cried. "'You're a man, Orlando,' he cried. Never was there such a scene of protestation and demonstration as then took place, 
since the world began. When it was over and they were seated again, she asked him, what was this talk of a southwest gale, where was he bound for? For the horn, he said briefly, and blushed. For a man had to blush as a woman had, only at rather different things. It was only by dint of great pressure on her side, and the use of much intuition, that she gathered that his life was spent in the most desperate and splendid of adventures, which is to voyage round Cape Horn in the teeth of a gale. Masts had been snapped off, sails torn to ribbons. She had to drag the admission from him. Sometimes the ship had sunk, and he had been left the only survivor, on a raft with a biscuit. "'It's about all a fellow can do nowadays,' he said sheepishly, and helped himself to great spoonfuls of strawberry jam. The vision which he had thereupon of this boy, for he was little more, sucking peppermints, for which he had a passion, while the masts snapped and the stars reeled, and he roared brief orders to cut this adrift, to heave that overboard, brought the tears to her eyes. Tears, she noted, of a finer flavour than any she had cried before. "'I am a woman,' she thought, "'a real woman at last.' She thanked Bonthrop from the bottom of her heart for having given her this rare and unexpected delight. Had she not been lame in the left foot, she would have sat upon his knee. "'Shell, my darling,' she began again, "'tell me—' And so they talked two hours or more, perhaps about Cape Horn, perhaps not, and really it would profit little to write down what they said, for they knew each other so well that they could say anything which is tantamount to saying nothing, or saying such stupid prosy things as how to cook an omelette, or where to buy the best boots in London, things which have no lustre taken from their setting, yet are positively of amazing beauty within it. For it has come about, by the wise economy of nature, that our modern spirit can almost dispense with language. The commonest expressions do, since no expressions do. Hence the most ordinary conversation is often the most poetic, and the most poetic is precisely that which cannot be written down. For which reasons we leave a great blank here, which must be taken to indicate that the space is filled to repletion. After some days more of this kind of talk, Orlando, my dearest, Shell was beginning, when there was a scuffling outside, and Basket the butler entered, with the information that there was a couple of peelers downstairs with a warrant from the Queen. "'Show em up,' said Shelmardine briefly, as if on his own quarter-deck, taking up, by instinct, a stand with his hands behind him in front of the fireplace. Two officers in bottle-green uniforms, with truncheons at their hips, then entered the room and stood at attention. Formalities being over, they gave into Orlando's own hands as their commission was, a legal document of some very impressive sort, judging by the blobs of sealing-wax, the ribbons, the oaths, and the signatures, which were all of the highest importance. Orlando ran her eyes through it, and then, using the first finger of her right hand as pointer, read out the following facts as being most germane to the matter. "'The lawsuits are settled,' she read out. "'Some in my favour, as, for example, others not. Turkish marriage annulled. I was ambassador in Constantinople, Shell, she explained. Children pronounced illegitimate. They said I had three sons by Pepita, a Spanish dancer. 
so they don't inherit, which is all to the good. Sex. Ah, what about sex? My sex, she read out with some solemnity, is pronounced, indisputably, and beyond the shadow of a doubt. What was I telling you a moment ago, Shell? Female. The estates which are now desequestrated in perpetuity descend, and are tailed and entailed, upon the heir's male of my body, or in default of marriage. But here she grew impatient with this legal verbiage, and said, But there won't be any default of marriage, nor of heirs either, so the rest can be taken as read. Whereupon she appended her own signature beneath Lord Palmerston's, and entered from that moment into the undisturbed possession of her titles, her house and her estate, which was now so much shrunk, for the cost of the lawsuits had been prodigious, that though she was infinitely noble again, she was also excessively poor. When the result of the lawsuit was made known, and rumour flew much quicker than the telegraph which has supplanted it, the whole town was filled with rejoicings. Horses were put into carriages for the sole purpose of being taken out. Empty barouches and landaus were trundled up and down the high street incessantly. Addresses were read from the bull, replies were made from the stag, the town was illuminated, gold caskets were securely sealed in glass cases, coins were well and duly laid under stones, hospitals were founded, rat and sparrow clubs were inaugurated, Turkish women by the dozen were burnt in effigy in the market-place, together with scores of peasant boys with the label, I am a base pretender, lolling from their mouths. The Queen's cream-coloured ponies were soon seen trotting up the avenue, with a command to Orlando to dine and sleep at the castle that very same night. Her table, as on a previous occasion, was snowed under with invitations from the Countess of R., Lady Q., Lady Palmerston, the Marchioness of P., Mrs. W. E. Gladstone, and others, beseeching the pleasure of her company, reminding her of ancient alliances between their family and her own, etc., all of which is properly enclosed in square brackets, as above, for the good reason that a parenthesis it was without any importance in Orlando's life. She skipped it to get on with the text. For when the bonfires were blazing in the market-place, she was in the dark woods with Shelmardine alone. So fine was the weather, that the trees stretched their branches motionless above them, and if a leaf fell, it fell spotted red and gold, so slowly that one could watch it for half an hour, fluttering and falling, till it came to rest at last on Orlando's foot. "'Tell me, Ma,' she would say, and here it must be explained, that when she called him by the first syllable of his first name, she was in a dreamy, amorous, acquiescent mood, domestic, languid a little, as if spiced logs were burning, and it was evening, not yet time to dress, and a thought wet perhaps outside, enough to make the leaves glisten, but a nightingale might be singing even so among the azaleas, two or three dogs barking at distant farms, a cock crowing, all of which the reader should imagine in her voice. "'Tell me, Ma,' she would say, about Cape Horn. Then Shelmardine would make a little model on the ground, of the cape, with twigs and dead leaves, and an empty snail-shell or two. Here's the north, he would say. There's the south. The wind's coming from hereabouts. Now the brig is sailing due west. 
we've just lowered the top boom mizzen, and so, you see, here, where this bit of grass is, she enters the current which you'll find marked. Where's my map and compasses, boatswain? Ah, thanks, that'll do, where the snail-shell is. The current catches her on the starboard side, so we must rig the jib-boom, or we shall be carried to the larboard, which is where that beech-leaf is. For you must understand, my dear." And so he would go on, and she would listen to every word, interpreting them rightly, so as to see, that is to say, without his having to tell her, the phosphorescence on the waves, the icicles clanking in the shrouds, how he went to the top of the mast in a gale, there reflected on the destiny of man, came down again, had a whisky and soda, went on shore, was trapped by a black woman, repented, reasoned it out, read Pascal, determined to write philosophy, bought a monkey, debated the true end of life, decided in favour of Cape Horn, and so on. All this, and a thousand other things, she understood him to say, and so when she replied, Yes, negresses are seductive, aren't they? He having told her that the supply of biscuits now gave out, he was surprised and delighted to find how well she had taken his meaning. "'Are you positive you aren't a man?' he would ask anxiously. And she would echo, "'Can it be possible you're not a woman?' And then they must put it to the proof without more ado. For each was so surprised at the quickness of the other's sympathy, and it was to each such a revelation that a woman could be as tolerant and free-spoken as a man, and a man as strange and subtle as a woman, that they had to put the matter to the proof at once. And so they would go on talking, or rather understanding, which has become the main art of speech in an age where words are growing daily so scanty in comparison with ideas that the biscuits ran out, has to stand for kissing a negress in the dark, when one has read Bishop Berkeley's philosophy for the tenth time and from this it follows that only the most profound masters of style can tell the truth, and when one meets a simple one-syllable writer, one may conclude, without any doubt at all, that the poor man is lying. So they would talk, and then, when her feet were fairly covered with spotted autumn leaves, Orlando would rise and stroll away into the heart of the woods in solitude, leaving Bonthrop sitting there among the snail-shells, making models of Cape Horn. "'Bonthrop,' she would say, "'I'm off.' And when she called him by his second name, Bonthrop, it should signify to the reader that she was in a solitary mood, felt them both as specks on a desert, was desirous only of meeting death by herself, for people die daily, die at dinner-tables, or like this, out of doors in the autumn woods, and with the bonfires blazing, and Lady Palmerston or Lady Derby, asking her out every night to dinner, the desire for death would overcome her, and so saying, Bonthrop, she said, in effect, I'm dead, and pushed her way as a spirit might through the spectre-pale beech-trees, and so awed herself deep into solitude, as if the little flicker of noise and movement were over, and she were free now to take her way. All of which the reader should hear in her voice when she said, Bonthrop, and should also add, the better to illumine the word, that for him too the same word signified, mystically, separation and isolation, and the disembodied pacing the deck of his brig in unfathomable seas. After some hours of death, 
suddenly a jay shrieked, Shelmerdine! And stooping, she picked up one of those autumn crocuses, which to some people signify that very word, and put it with a jay's feather that came tumbling blue through the beechwoods in her breast. Then she called, Shelmerdine! and the word went shooting this way and that through the woods, and struck him where he sat, making models out of snail-shells in the grass. He saw her, and heard her coming to him, with the crocus and the jay's feather in her breast, and cried, Orlando! which meant, and it must be remembered that when bright colours like blue and yellow mix themselves in our eyes, some of it rubs off on our thoughts, first the bowing and swaying of bracken as if something were breaking through, which proved to be a ship in full sail, heaving and tossing a little dreamily, rather as if she had a whole year of summer days to make her voyage in, and so the ship bears down, heaving this way, heaving that way, nobly, indolently, and rides over the crest of this wave and sinks into the hollow of that one, and so suddenly stands over you, who were in a little cockle-shell of a boat, looking up at her, with all her sails quivering. And then, behold, they drop all of a heap on deck, as Orlando dropped now into the grass beside him. Eight or nine days had been spent thus, but on the tenth, which was the twenty-sixth of October, Orlando was lying in the bracken, while Shelmerdine recited Shelley, whose entire works he had by heart, when a leaf, which had started to fall slowly enough from a tree-top, whipped briskly across Orlando's foot. A second leaf followed, and then a third. Orlando shivered and turned pale. It was the wind. Shelmerdine, but it would be more proper now to call him Bonthrop, leapt to his feet. The wind! he cried. Together they ran through the woods, the wind plastering them with leaves as they ran, to the great court, and through it, and the little courts, frightened servants leaving their brooms and their saucepans to follow after, till they reached the chapel, and there a scattering of lights was lit as fast as could be, one knocking over this bench, another snuffing out that taper. Bells were rung, people were summoned. At length there was Mr. Dupper, catching at the ends of his white tie and asking where was the prayer-book and they thrust Queen Mary's prayer-book in his hands, and he searched, hastily fluttering the pages, and said, Marmaduke, Bonthrop, Shelmerdine, and Lady Orlando, kneel down. And they knelt down, and now they were bright, and now they were dark, as the light and shadow came flying helter-skelter through the painted windows, and among the banging of innumerable doors, and a sound like brass pots beating, the organ sounded its growl coming loud and faint alternately, and Mr. Dupper, who was grown a very old man, tried now to raise his voice above the uproar, and could not be heard, and then all was quiet for a moment, and one word—it might be, the jaws of death—rang out clear, while all the estate servants kept pressing in with rakes and whips still in their hands to listen, and some sang loud and others prayed, and now a bird was dashed against the pane, and now there was a clap of thunder, so that no one heard the word obey spoken, or saw, except as a golden flash, the ring pass from hand to hand. All was movement and confusion. 
and up they rose with the organ booming and the lightning playing and the rain pouring, and the Lady Orlando, with her ring on her finger, went out into the court in her thin dress, and held the swinging stirrup, for the horse was bitted and bridled, and the foam was still on his flank, for her husband to mount, which he did with one bound. And the horse leapt forward, and Orlando, standing there, cried out, Marmaduke Bonthrop Shelmardine, and he answered her, Orlando, and the words went dashing and circling like wild hawks together among the belfries, and higher and higher, further and further, faster and faster they circled, till they crashed and fell in a shower of fragments to the ground, and she went in. End of section 14When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.